Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. U.S. Supreme Court struck another blow to consideration of race in college admissions yesterday. We're going to talk about what it means from a national perspective, as well as what it means here, where race consciousness has been illegal for nearly 20 years. We'll also take a look at what will happen to college campuses across the country. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. On 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. In 1988, I was a first-year student at the University of Michigan, and history suggests that was something of a high point in the university's efforts to make the campus more diverse than it has been. Eight percent is the number that we would hear all the time about how many black students were part of the student body in that year. 8%. It sounds like a lot, but it's still less than 1 in 10 students. Still, it felt like there was something of a victory taking place, that there were so many black students there, almost a critical mass, really, enough to form kind of a community and, of course, to be a bigger part of the overall community. This fall, fall 2023, my daughter will start college at the University of Michigan. And the percentage of black students that she will find there is somewhere around 4%. 4.2%. Nearly half the number when I was a first-year student. We've been going backward in terms of diversifying college campuses, and there are lots of reasons for that. Primary among them is that the tool that colleges have used forever to make their campuses more diverse affirmative action has just been under attack, under attack in the courts, under attack on the ballot. And so fewer and fewer African-American students are being admitted to places like the University of Michigan, selective colleges, elites, as we might call them. Yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down admissions programs at Harvard University and University of North Carolina, programs that were aimed at achieving more diversity on campus. And lots of people are up in arms about what happened, what the justices did, and what effect they think it will have. But the truth is, this has been going on for decades now. The assault on the idea 
of diversifying campuses, of considering race as one of the things that colleges look at when they decide who's going to get in and who doesn't. Here in Michigan, we had a ballot initiative in 2006 that absolutely outlawed the consideration of race, not only in college admissions, but in all of government. And we've seen the percentages at colleges and universities here plummet since then. So what is the future of higher education for people of color in this country, following what the U.S. Supreme Court did, but also given this very long assault on the idea, the very idea that race should be one of the things we consider when we think about opportunity. That's what college admission is, opportunity. What do we lose as a society when we do things like ban affirmative action? What have the effects been like for us here in Michigan in the last 17 years while we've had a ban in place? And what can the experience that our state has had tell us about what could soon occur in every state? That's where we begin the conversation today. What does this mean? What does this mean to us here in Michigan? What does it mean to the rest of the country? What does it mean to the idea of inclusion and opportunity for everybody? A little later, we're going to hear from Evan Kamaker, who was the dean of the U of M Law School while the university defended its affirmative action program in the U.S. Supreme Court two decades ago. We'll also talk with Jelani Jefferson-Exum, who is a constitutional law expert and current dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. We're going to get her perspective on the rulings. Uh, She is a constitutional expert and somebody who thinks a lot about diversity and opportunity. But before we have those conversations, we just want to spend a little time understanding the case that the justices decided yesterday and how it affects affirmative action both locally and nationally. To do that, we are joined by NPR higher education correspondent Alyssa Nadwarney. Uh, Alyssa, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with uh, the justice's decision. Uh, I I feel like there was a little bit of confusion yesterday Mm -hmm. uh, as they were announcing the decision. I was looking at headlines in a number of different places, the Post and the Times and USA Today. Some people were saying, look, this is the end of affirmative action. Others were saying this is just another curtailing of the opportunity. Uh, spend a little time talking specifically about what this opinion says and what it mandates uh, for colleges going going forward. Yeah, well, I guess let's start with the headline, which is that you know the Supreme Court found that the admissions processes at the University of North Carolina and Harvard violated the Fourteenth Amendment of the Constitution. So I think that that's kind of the big, that's the big bar. So essentially what they were doing violated this equal protection. Mm -hmm. Now, this is major because, you know, we've had more than 40 years of legal precedent saying that's not quite the case. And so that's kind of the big news. And then let's get into the, the opinion and kind of the nitty gritty. I mean, a lot of folks were, I have been telling you that this was far more narrow than they expected. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is 
they're very specific to talk about these programs and um, the way that schools have kind of used, a lot of people say kind of the check the box, you know, putting your race on the application. Mm -hmm. That is no longer. But as you said, there was some door openings. The, The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. And he has this line right at the end of the opinion that says essentially schools can still consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life through it, by, you know, mm-hmm. through discrimination, inspiration, otherwise. And this kind of sentence towards the end of, of the opinion for a lot of people signals this open door of kind of like, okay, race can still be a part of a student's story. What, what this decision is kind of saying is that box that saying explicitly asking for a student's race is not allowed, is not um, conducive with the Constitution. Yeah. So... <laughs> it's a little bit wild, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it really is. I mean, and, and given some of the history that I tried to lay out in the intro, I mean, uh, yep. it, it's remarkable. This is, as I said, something we've struggled with in this country for an awful long time, and we've been going backwards, not uh, not uh, not forward. We're not expanding opportunities for uh, for African American kids in particular. Uh, in college, but but talk about what effect this will have then on places like Harvard and University of North Carolina. Uh, obviously, they still uh, will say I, th- I think that they that they hold yep. diversity uh, high, high in high regard and 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 want diverse campuses. What will they do uh, now that yeah. they can't they can't do what they have been doing? <laughs> well, I'm going to take that in a couple different parts. So one for sure, they have both. Uh, universities have put out statements that say both they will abide by this ruling, but they also will continue to value diversity and will aim for that in their student bodies. Um, You know, what will happen next? So recently we had some uh, really impressive research from Georgetown University. They ran simulations to see what would happen if race was removed from college admissions and kind of the admissions process at places like Harvard or UNC stayed the same. And they found that a national ban would decrease the ethnic diversity of students unless they totally kind of redesigned the college admission system. Mm-hmm. And in, we can talk more about this, but that would in, potentially include things like eliminating legacy. So mm-hmm. these are when you know students who have a connection through family to the college get admitted, um, athletic recruitment, among other things. Um, And then I think, you know, in terms of what Harvard and UNC and other selective colleges will do now, that's kind of where it gets a little bit murkier. Like, actually, when you can um, put race on the application in an explicit way and you can use affirmative action, it actually is a little bit more clear. Now it's going to be far more subjective. And so it's going to rely on essays and kind of the narrative that a student presents and it's going to rely a lot on these decision makers in these closed door rooms to kind of figure out who gets in and why yeah yeah um talk about the split on the court itself Uh, we had two very strong dissents uh, filed uh, by uh, justice jackson and justice sotomayor they say this is stepping away from precedent, and importantly, 
uh, the precedent set in uh, 2003 by the Gratz and Gruder cases where the court pretty narrowly said, okay, uh, this is something we can we can do. We can do it for the next 25 years. We don't expect it to go beyond that. We need it to be very narrowly tailored. Um, what what uh, what does that tell us about the the court itself, uh, but also about the the passions about about this issue? Yeah, so I think the I mean, first of all, the, how the court split the the six three and the the UNC case and the six two because of course Judge Jackson you know re- recused herself from Harvard the mm-hmm. Harvard case. Mm-hmm. Um, those are pretty clear in terms of kind of the lines in which the court leans. And so that I think is very indicative of kind of what this decision um, means. Um, I will say, I'm going to talk about kind of the dissent and, and the majority, but much of the arguments that we saw in the majority are arguments that we've seen previously, but they were in the dissent, right? For previous cases. So what's happened here is, is, is a shifting of the court. And I think that's very clear in terms of the familiar arguments that were in dissents. Um, one thing that was like pretty fiery to see in Justice Kenji Brown Jackson's um, uh, writing is the way that she and Thomas kind of went right at each other with their arguments. I mean, they referenced each other in the in the in the opinions. Um, in terms of the dissent, I think the biggest takeaway is that this idea, this interpretation of whether or not this is constitutionally sound for them was not based in kind of the reality that, that we live in. And this, you talked a little bit in your intro, um, you know, basically we're kind of living in a let them eat cake mm-hmm. world is what um, Brown Jackson wrote. Mm-hmm. Basically like, yes, these could, this idea in the law could be, could make sense, but look at the world in which we live. Right. And I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway in the dissent of like, this doesn't, this doesn't fit in the world that we exist in, that the world that we have existed in, in America for hundreds, a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Alyssa Nardwarney. She is an NPR education correspondent who covers higher ed and affirmative action. We're talking about what the U.S. Supreme Court did yesterday, uh, striking down admissions policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina uh, because it said that uh, they violate the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause because they consider race uh, in in an improper way, they said, uh, for uh, college admissions. We're going to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of what the Supreme Court did yesterday? What do you believe we lose or gain if we eliminate things like affirmative action, something we did here in the state of Michigan uh, in 2006? Uh, Do you feel underrepresented uh, at your school or your university? Do you think diversity is important in higher ed and other places? If you don't support the idea of affirmative action, what do you think colleges and universities should do or be able to do uh, to make sure that they are diverse places. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you uh, in in the conversation. Um, uh, Alyssa, as I said, here in Michigan, we have 
had a ban on affirmative action since 2006. Uh, and we are seeing, I think, in very stark terms how how damaging that has been to the cause uh, of diversity. Are people now looking at Michigan and California and a few other states uh, and thinking that this is the future for for the country uh, and and that uh, uh, that that everyone else is essentially headed to the space where we are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's really interesting about this is that we've had such clear demonstrations of what happens when an affirmative action ban is put in place, as you said, in Michigan and in California. And several other states. Um, so I think in some ways it it serves as, um, you know, a little bit of the tea leaves of what will happen. And in some ways it also serves as uh, a roadmap in some ways of kind of what is ahead in terms of what colleges may need to do. So I want to um, mention uh, the example at the University of California system. You know, they spent basically two decades they totally reimagined their kind of admissions process and criteria, and they spent almost half a billion dollars. Mm. So <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And they are still on some campuses, not quite where they were, you know, in the nineties before, before the ban took place. And so I think in a lot of ways for colleges around the country and including private colleges in Michigan, which this now applies to, um, you know, this is going to be a big undertaking for colleges and it's going to be expensive. Yeah. So, um, you know, the folks that I've been talking to, including the the leader of the National Association of College Admission Counseling, that's the thing I think they're worried about the most is like states, colleges, they don't have that kind of money or or even political will. You know, th- there is a long road ahead of colleges as this goes away. And exactly as you said, we saw that happen in places like Michigan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alyssa Nadwarney, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. When we come back, we are going to hear from Evan Kamaker. He is a constitutional law expert and a law professor at the University of Michigan. He was also the dean of the Michigan Law School when U of M's affirmative action program was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003. We're going to get his thoughts on Thursday's decision and what diversity looks like on campus, both before and after the university was allowed to consider race as a factor in admission. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Evan Kamaker is a professor of law at the University of Michigan who served as the dean of the law school at a critical time 
when you think about what has happened over a long period of time with affirmative action. He was the dean from 2003 to 2011, both during the cases that were heard at the Supreme Court challenging uh, the admissions policies in the undergraduate program and the law school at U of M, and also while uh, the statewide ballot initiative took place here that banned affirmative action across the board. Evan, uh, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So I want to go back uh, to that time uh, when you were uh, the dean of the law school and these two really critical events happened in the life of affirmative action in the country. And have you talk about how they changed things here in Michigan and specifically at the University of Michigan? Well, they had a significant impact, no question about it. Um, The ruling of today that universities can no longer take race into account directly, uh, based on our experience, is going to have a significant dampening on the enrollment of underrepresented racial minorities in selective colleges and universities around the country. Here at the University of Michigan, when uh, back in 2007, when Proposal 2 went into effect, both at the undergraduate level and at least here in the law school, the number of racial underrepresented racial minorities enrolled uh, dropped significantly. And over the last 15 years, both the undergraduate population and the student and the law school population still isn't back to where it was. Notwithstanding 15 years of continuing efforts using outreach and greater financial aid and all sorts of race-neutral measures designed to try and promote racial diversity, um, the numbers are still just not back yet. And so, I would expect that'll be true for other universities as well. So, so when you read the opinion from the court uh, this week and, and understand or try to understand the Chief Justice's uh, reasoning. I mean, he's the uh, he's the author of this opinion and somebody whose whose views on uh, these issues and on the record here are, are, are pretty clear. He, he seems to be saying that we've just had enough of this in some ways. Uh, he invokes the 25 year time limit that Justice O'Connor had previously put on affirmative action, saying, "Hey, by then we should." We should have come up with a better way to do this. Uh, And he says, look, just looking at race for the sake of diversity, for the sake of making uh, universities more inclusive is not enough, that there has to be there has to be something else. Uh, I, I wonder how you answer that, given that you've had to operate at the University of Michigan under pretty similar rules for a really long time. Correct. Well, the problem is there really is not something else. Um, None of the race-neutral proposals that have been studied or have been tried in the states where affirmative action has either permanently been banned or was temporarily banned, for example, in Texas, uh, none of those efforts really have produced an alternative way of keeping the number of racial minorities up where they are. And secondly, a lot of them have negative side effects because they crowd out consideration of merit-based factors that schools want to take into account. So let me just give a couple of examples. Yeah, give me an example of that, right. I I, I think it's great for universities to have spent far more energy and effort focusing on low-income students. I think it's great for its own purposes that we ought to have greater class diversity 
in higher education. But at every level of income, the number of minority students is still dwarfed by the number of white applicants. So it's not as though you can say, well, let's start taking more students from uh, more impoverished backgrounds, and that's a way to reproduce racial diversity. You might get a little bit more of it, but you're also going to get a lot of white applicants who grow up in poverty as well. So it may be good for its own sake, but it's not a replacement for taking race directly into account. Hmm. And with respect to the crowding out point, let me just give you the example of a number of states that have gone to either a 10% plan or a 4% plan where they say, we'll just automatically admit the top 10% performing students from every high school based on their GPA. To some extent, that will get you some racial diversity if you have segregated high schools, which is not itself something we should aspire to. Mm-hmm. But it does so by basically saying we're going to admit based only on GPA. That means you don't consider test scores. You don't consider demonstration of leadership. You don't consider fabulous personal essays that show something individually strong about a candidate. You can't consider obstacles overcome or things like that. So the alternative ways to try and replicate some racial racial diversity either don't work as well or crowd out a holistic assessment of the student's whole set of talents and skills and accomplishments or do both. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I also want to have you spend a little time talking about uh, the constitutional arguments here. Uh, According to chief justice Roberts and the majority on the court, uh, race consideration for the sake of race and for the sake of diversity is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Obviously, lots of people disagree about that, um, but but help us understand uh, why that might be uh, an incorrect interpretation or at least uh, an unpopular interpretation of the 14th Amendment and, and make the case for why uh, this limited consideration of race that's been going on now for almost 20 years – uh, in in most places in terms of college admissions. Why, why should that be permissible? Well, the limited use of race actually goes even deeper to the mid-1970s to sure. Bakke. Yeah. Um, I, I would say this. I think everybody has the same goal that the Chief Justice articulates. You know, it would be nice to live in a society where race doesn't matter anymore and we could be race-neutral in all respects and feel like we're doing things that are fair and just, etc. I don't think we live in that world yet. There are a lot of structural disadvantages that many, not all, obviously, but many students of underrepresented minority races still feel today. Just look at the Detroit public school system, for example. Um, in fact, today is being celebrated because uh, a settlement that came out of a lawsuit that was brought on behalf of Detroit school children against the state a few years ago has finally been signed. Um, but the lawsuit itself showed that a lot of the schools in inner city Detroit are essentially schools in name only. They have buildings that are falling down. Uh, they have windows that won't open or shut, even if the air conditioning or the heat doesn't work. They have vermin running around that the teachers have to clean up after in the morning. They don't have enough teachers. 
Not all the teachers are qualified for their subjects or even accredited. They don't have homework that they can do effectively because they don't each individually have enough textbooks. They don't have laptops handed to them, so they can't do work at home based on that. Not surprising that students who go through an experience like that don't have the same capability of either demonstrating their innate talents and skills and intelligence or forming good learning habits, good learning skills of the sort that allow them to truly compete fairly in a college admissions application. So I think that the, the, the problem with the chief's vision is that he kind of assumes everybody's really starting on the same footing. And unfortunately, in a lot of ways, some obvious and some subtle, I don't think that's true yet in our America. Hmm. The chief would say, I think I'm being pretty faithful to the things he said in the, in the past, that the path to that vision you just laid out is to stop talking about, stop thinking about, stop considering race as much as we do. What's wrong with that argument? Well, if there were a but at the end of that, right? <laughs> right, but we can solve our problems this other way, I'd feel a lot better. But there isn't a but, right? For years, opponents of affirmative action have been saying it's just a Band-Aid at the end of somebody's educational experiences. We ought to be attacking the symptoms, and we ought to be putting more money into improving local schools, for example, mm -hmm. and bringing people out of poverty and, and helping with Head Start programs and helping with nutrition uh, before children even go to school, right? Where has the political will gone to do those things? People talk about them, but I don't see them happening. So I think the, it is admittedly a question about which reasonable people might disagree mm -hmm. about, you know, how do you best get from where we are to the place that we all want to be? And I guess my own view, and the view obviously of the dissents here, is that the majority is just cutting off this tool too early. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Evan Kamaker. He is a professor of law at the University of Michigan, also served as the dean of the law school from 2003 to 2011. Um, I, I want to have you forecast ahead just a bit, um, and, and I want to have you do it in the, in the context of, okay, we've been living with uh, you know, a, a reality that prevents uh, colleges and universities and, and other public institutions from using race as uh, any kind of consideration uh, in, in their decision making. Um, uh, do you, do, what do you foresee for, for uh, colleges and universities that have been able to do this for the last 20 years? Does every, everyone end up in the same boat that Michigan is, as you said up front, not able to maintain access or the kind of access uh, for underrepresented minorities that it that it did before, or are there things that uh, also are, are there things that you've tried that you'd love to see other colleges and universities try and in maybe the hope that they might work differently in a different place. Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, the the impact of affirmative actions demise will be felt most significantly at selective universities. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, there are a number of, you know, great learning experiences around the country uh, where, you know, schools like state school systems or et cetera will accept everybody who graduates uh, in good standing from high school. And I think it's cr- incredibly important that we continue to try and find ways to encourage all students, but particularly students who come from low-income means, uh, who, who may think, oh, my gosh, I just can't possibly afford college. We need to work harder to continue to reach out to them and make clear that there will be a college for you someplace mm-hmm. as long as you do your work and as long as you apply, and hopefully the financial aid can be found for that. Mm-hmm. In terms of what the selective schools can do, um, you know, on the one hand, I suppose there may be less of a learning curve for many schools around the country because they can now at least look to the efforts that Michigan has made for 15 years and the University of California has made even longer than that. Um, But the things that they will learn are still things that won't still get them the same level of racial diversity, just as we haven't been able to do so. They're more about outreach. They are more about informing students who might have thought, you know, I'll never be able to get into the University of Michigan. Well, maybe you can. Maybe there are pipeline programs at the undergraduate level that can help go into uh, disadvantaged high schools and try and work with the students to give them the sense that maybe they can uh, still aspire to get in. Maybe more information about financial aid that is available can work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the things I think that have helped Michigan recover to some degree from where we were 15 years ago. It's just that they're not panaceas. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Evan Kamaker, professor of law at the University of Michigan. Really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for stopping by. You're quite welcome. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the affirmative action cases. Stay where you are. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. For news that impacts your community, music that moves your soul, and conversations that matter. W. D. E. T. Detroit's NPR station. Talking about what the U.S. Supreme Court did yesterday, striking yet another blow to college and universities' efforts to diversify their campuses. They struck down uh, policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina and really narrowed the window for colleges and universities to be able to consider race in their admissions. We want to get another perspective on that decision and on the larger question of how we make sure there's opportunity for everybody. I'm now joined by Jelani Jefferson Exum. She is a constitutional law expert, and she's also the dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Jelani, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank so, you, as always. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. Start with your reaction to what the justices did yesterday, both the majority opinion and what we saw from dissents uh, from Sotomayor and uh, Jackson. 
You know, my reaction was the same as many of us have been working in legal education toward equity. And um, that's one of disappointment, but not surprise. We, we've already seen the trajectory of this court in previous decisions. And so many of us were expecting this. I'd say pretty much everyone was expecting this outcome. But um, nonetheless, actually seeing it come down, I, I have to say I definitely felt um, felt uh, more disappointment than I even expected. Mm. And um, in reading the words, but, you know, you asked about the majority and the dissent opinion, the majority opinion wasn't, as I said, wasn't surprising. I expected to see what I saw, but I'll have to tell you that I was uplifted by the really brilliant dissents, especially that of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm-hmm. And um, they just really laid out the the problems, the detachment of the majority opinion, and also highlighting pathways forward. So, so I want to have you talk about what you think colleges and universities should and could do going forward. But then I want to pull the lens back just a little and talk about how this informs the discussion, the argument, the tension that we have had for a long time about race and opportunity, uh, the, 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 the structural inequalities that, that still exist, and how we make sure that we tear those inequalities down and open up uh, institutions to people who have historically been been left out. Right. Well, just starting with what universities and colleges will be doing now. I mean, the truth is that we've had this sort of model in certain states, Michigan being one of them, where public institutions are not able to um, use race in admissions, college and university admissions. Same in California. So there are some um, templates for what to do. But truly, what schools will do is that they, they will stay true to their missions. Those schools that do not have missions that really show a value to having diverse classes and um, working toward equity and educational policies, they'll continue on with what they've been doing. But for schools like the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law, Mm -hmm. um, the University of Detroit Mercy at large, and many others across the nation that have a true commitment to diversity, that understand that diversity is beneficial to the educational enterprise at large, and um, who just see that, that, that humanity in, in everyone and understands that individuals need the opportunity to have access to education, regardless of their background, those schools will have to be creative and navigate um, the, within the bounds of the law now set by the Supreme Court to make sure that they do very intentional outreach to communities of color, which has been happening at many schools already, but understanding that their hands will be tied a bit more in um, how to craft application materials, how to talk to students about opportunities at schools, um, pipeline programs, things of that sort. But many of us are already studying those 237 pages of the opinion and um, looking for um, space to still do the work that we know is so important. Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems as though when, I, when I'm reading Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, opinion, one of the things that, that – I felt so strongly was that this is somebody who's living in almost an alternate space from the one that I exist in every day and and that all African-Americans, I think, exist in every day. This idea of colorblindness as a solution to the history of inequality and racism in this country is is a very strange notion and it 
again, it reflects a reality that that we don't live. Uh, and, and that's not to say that I wouldn't desire that, that I wouldn't want uh, to, for a, a colorblind solution to be to be uh, the, the, the way that you could fix things. But it, I, I guess uh, my fear is that we still are so far apart um, in, in the way that we think about these things that it, it becomes harder and harder to even have a conversation about it because we just don't have the same frames of reference even. I think you're right about that. Um, this line of thinking that the Chief Justice put forth in the opinion is, is one that's been around for a long time. It, it dates back um, decades, really, um, this idea of colorblindness. And it's been the constant fight when it comes to what does equal protection under the law, the law actually mean. Mm-hmm. We've seen such progress in, the, in that discourse um, with today's anti-racism discussions. But even over time, scholars for some time now have been pointing out the limited view of colorblindness and actually have been pointing out that it's um, a detrimental view, that it doesn't advance justice, that it doesn't advance equity because it ignores, just like you said, it ignores present day realities. But quite frankly, it also ignores the fact that there were structural, institutional, legal barriers put in place to create the systems of inequality that we have today. Mm -hmm. And so just removing those systems from the law doesn't put people on equal footing. We see that in our everyday society. When we look at our data now, we see racial disparities in healthcare, in wealth, in education, across the board. And that's because we're living in a world that hasn't fixed the problems that were created by these legal and structural barriers. And I'd just like to take a moment to uplift the words of Justice Jackson in her dissent, because Mm -hmm. I think it really, those words really highlight what you just said. She says in her dissent, and I encourage people to read this, it's really masterful, but she says, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And that's exactly what you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. Just because the Supreme Court has said that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause is one that requires colorblindness under the law, that does not make it so in life. It does not make it true that race doesn't matter. And I'll read just two other lines from her um, decision. She says from her dissent, if the colleges of this country are required to ignore a thing that matters, it will not just go away. It will take longer for racism to leave us. And ultimately, ignoring race just makes it matter more. And that, to me, is really the heart of what we'll have to deal with going forward, Mm -hmm. is making sure that we continue to have discussions about race and racism and the realities of life, what we're seeing um, every day, and working to create opportunities, working to dismantle um, systems that continue to oppress, working to make sure that all of our communities um, have are, are are reached so that people have access to education, which we know is so important to changing the trajectory of somebody's life. Yes, yes. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. I want to get uh, some of our listeners involved. And I want to start with uh, Jess Robinson, who is a recent graduate of the University of Michigan. Jess, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about your experience as a black student in a school with a black population that is considerably smaller than it was, for instance, when I started at the University of Michigan in the late 1980s. It is somewhere around 4 or 4.2%. Talk about what that feels like on a day-to-day basis as you go about your classes and, and other activities. Um, yeah, so I think on a day-to-day basis, you really do feel it. You feel the 4%. So in classrooms, it's more often than not, you'll be the only African-American student in a classroom. You have to make a lot of effort to find marginalized communities to like make groups of friends that aren't just predominantly white. So I think it takes a lot of intentionality to create groups of like diverse students now. And I think also we felt it in that we were intentionally making a push. There was a campaign, the More Than Four campaign, Mm -hmm. in which we were pushing for more diversity. So I think you could feel it in that we were actively protesting against it because it was so prominent in our lives, how like unseen we felt. Yeah. Uh, Can you compare your experience in Ann Arbor to for instance, your experience in, in, in high school, in, in, in K-12, uh, I, I'm not sure where you uh, attended school, but, but how different was it to be in a place that maybe looked different than where you were from? Yeah, well, for me personally, I'm from Troy, Michigan, mm-hmm. so I went to Troy High. So for me, it was very similar in that mm-hmm. there was a lot of white students, a lot of Asian-American students. But there was seemed to be a lack of Hispanic students and also black students. There would just be a small percentage. We sort of would gravitate towards each other. But when the class bell rang, we would just all scatter to the winds and then you're by yourself in class. So I'd say it was very similar to my K-12 through upbringing in that you feel very seen in that you're the only black student in the class, but you also feel very spoken over and unheard. Wow. Wow. Um, Jess, I really appreciate you calling in and uh, sharing sharing your experience. And uh, congratulations also oh, on thank you. now being a University of Michigan graduate. Okay, I want to go back to the phones here again. And let's go to Matt in Dearborn. Matt, what's on your mind? Hey, so I just wanted to say that I'm disappointed in the Supreme Court ruling. And I just want to describe why. And part of it is that when I was from K through eight, I went to an elementary school that was in middle school that was majority white. It was a private school in Dearborn and it was majority white. And then starting in high school, I went to a school that I think you're pretty familiar with um, in Detroit um, over on Seven Mile. <laughs> and the experience there was just completely different, right? Um, and then after that, after that school, I went off to the University of Michigan and it's, so the school I went to in for high school in, in Detroit, I mean, that is about I think 30 to 40% African-American at the time I went there, right? So just completely different dynamic, completely mm-hmm. different ideas that you're exposed to, completely different. Again, I mean, this is someone coming from from a you know a, a white background, right? And it's just you, you learn so much. You, you learn new ideas. You're exposed to new concepts, different things. And then it continues on when you go to school. So when I went to the University of Michigan, again, the African-American population was was sadly less than in my high school experience, but I'm exposed to more international ideas. I'm exposed to people from around the nation, things like that. And I think what the Supreme Court ruling is doing is really limiting the amount of exposure that people have to 
ideas, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that exposure really builds you as an individual. And I think it, you don't necessarily get those viewpoints otherwise. I don't yeah. think if I had continued my trajectory that I would have been exposed that way. Yeah. And so I just, Matt, I really, I, I really appreciate your call and, uh, and, and that perspective, uh, that experience, and the value that you see in being in you know, environments that are not monolithic when it comes to, to ethnicity or, or, or close to monolithic. Uh, thanks again for the call. Uh, Dean Axum, I want to I talk just a little about um, the idea of diversity versus the, the kind of recompense or, or uh, uh, effort to, to, to make up for uh, past discrimination and how those two concepts have been now both obliterated by the Supreme Court, that, that they've kind of put colleges and universities in a box where there isn't any way uh, to, to, to elevate the idea of, uh, of focusing on changing the population of, 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 of their campuses. Right. Affirmative action is really doing double duty. So there's the aspect of increasing diversity in educational spaces. And that was really the model of affirmative action that the court had gotten behind for so long. Mm -hmm. um, however, we know that in doing so, affirmative action was also opening up opportunities for access to educational spaces that had been closed for so long. So that's this sort of making up for past wrongs. Um, in the educational space, however, diversity was really the focus. That is what the court said was a, a compelling state interest. It's what um, experts have found to be really pedagogically sound, is this exchange of ideas of people from various backgrounds and rating one aspect. Of course, there are many parts of us that make us diverse and that, um, that add to diversity, I should say, in educational spaces. Um, and this is also not to make it sound as though somebody can be boiled down to their race or that all people of one race are bringing the same perspective. But we're such varied, complex people. Um, and so opening, having race as one component of that background and adding to diversity was one that educators have long known is, is beneficial. And so, yes, it's correct that with this current Supreme Court decision, it really does limit the ability to be to just sort of be um, completely open in these efforts to be creative in the ways that um, schools can build their class to ensure that students can um, can really be, be the sort of bringing in racial diversity can really be celebrated and is something to be proud of and not seen as something that is um, is contrary to overall interests of education, which is the way this court sort of um, speaks about diversity. It makes it sound as though it is um, backwards, mm -hmm. that it is looking at race when race should be something that we should never mention. Um, and so it does, it does affect the discourse. I will say, and I'm still reading the case closely, I still have quite a bit to, to mull over and yeah. to search through, but many, many people um, who are in the same place as, as I am and many of us are going through the, the case, thinking about what's the next frontier, um, the upside is that the decision is narrow. Yes. A lot of it is sort of dicta, which is just sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. But the actual holding itself is narrow. Um, it really is about race, intentional use of race in admissions. 
still leaves the door open, certainly for students to identify themselves in their own essays um, to talk about race as, as being an important part of their background. Um, it appears that it still leaves some space for um, the way questions about diversity may be tailored on applications. Sure. So there are still opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dean Jelani Jefferson, Exum, always really great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on the today. Thank you, as always. That's going to do it for us today and this week. Tune in Monday when we're going to look at how our country treats formerly incarcerated people who are returning to society and the harmful effects of that with MacArthur Award winner Ruben Miller. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Talk again next week.